Well, I've told you guys before that my favorite uh, podcast TV show is Pardon the Interruption, PTI. Uh, Mike Wilbon, Tony Kornheiser, and they argue about sports and they talk about sports. And in the old days of the show, they had a, a guy named Tony Reale who was stat boy. And he had a job at the end of every show to fact check what they got wrong. So at the end of every show, they would go to Reale and Reale would say, oh, you said this wrong, you got this stat wrong, you said the wrong name or whatever. So last week, I had a stat boy come up to me after class and we'd already dismissed. So I'm fact checking myself tonight just to clear the record and set the record straight. If you've got notes from last week or if you were here last week, I kept in the notes, I typed it out and I kept uh, referring to somebody named Nancy Piercy last week, and I should have been referring to Nancy Guthrie, and I'd been reading a Nancy Piercy book uh, on worldview, and I just got my Nancy's crisscrossed. So last week, we kept talking, you, I, you kept hearing me say, Nancy Piercy, Nancy Piercy. Nancy Guthrie has written the book called Blessed that our ladies are studying and that I've quoted several times. So I got that name wrong last week and just wanted to clear that up. Uh, set the record straight. So Revelation 6 and 7, let me tell you a quick story. In 2010, uh, I was living in Frankfort, Kentucky, and I was pastoring North Benson Baptist Church. I had been there about three and a half years, and I was on the tail end of my uh, PhD program. I was finishing up my dissertation and I was a seasoned pastor of all of three years. And I got this bright idea, I think I want to preach through Revelation. I think I'm ready to tackle this book. Uh, three years into preaching. So I started, and we made it through chapter one. And that chapter one's not that bad. It's not that difficult. It's not that controversial. We made it through chapter two and chapter three, the letters to the churches, you almost can't mess those up if you can read and you can say anything coherent. So we made it through the letters to the churches. And we got to chapter 4 and 5, which get a little bit trickier, uh, but they're pretty straightforward. And there's not a whole lot of debate about Revelation 4 and 5. Most of the commentators agree on the big ideas and the main themes and all of that stuff. And I was ready to jump in to Revelation chapter 6. And at that time, along that time, uh, a church in Kingfisher, Oklahoma had been talking to me, and they extended a call for me to come be their pastor, and my preaching through Revelation at North Benson Baptist Church in Kentucky stopped mercifully at Revelation chapter 5. And I didn't make it to chapter 6, and on my last Sunday at North Benson Baptist Church, I said, look... We made it through chapter 5. I'm going to preach on the rest of the book. So I'm going to finish the series, one sermon on Revelation 6 through 22, just talking about some of the big ideas and the big themes in the book. In hindsight, uh, I'm really thankful that the Lord plucked me out of that place and said, no, you're not ready to finish the rest of this book and to walk through some of these other things. And I wasn't ready to do that. Uh, I don't know that now I'm ready to do that, but I have no more job offers that have come my way. So we're plowing ahead, Revelation 6 and 7 tonight. So I feel like I'm picking up where I left off about 
12 years ago or so. One of the interesting things about the book of Revelation, and it really becomes prominent in chapter 6 and 7, is that the book of Revelation has inspired an amazing amount of art. And that's especially true for what we're about to read in Revelation 6 when you read about what are traditionally known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've heard this phrase thrown around, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there's all sorts of paintings. I've got four or five of them. Jason's going to just kind of scroll through them. As you look at these paintings, I want you to pay attention to the rider on the white horse because it's one of the most fascinating debates in all of the book of Revelation. All kinds of paintings, all kinds of artist depictions. People read this book, this vision, this account of what John saw, and artists are just instinctively moved to try to take what John's describing and put it back into visual form. You understand, for John, this was a vision. It was something visual, and he reduced it down to words. And artists throughout history have tried to take these words and back in to the art. So there's all sorts of paintings uh, about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and that sort of continues throughout the book of Revelation as artists are inspired to draw these things. One of the things I want you to understand is that by the time, this is just basic, simple observation, by the time you get to Revelation 6 and 7, you've made it through about a fifth of the book, 20% of the book. And I'm pointing that out to you just by way of encouragement. Because up through chapter 1, the vision of Jesus, chapter 2 and 3, the vision uh, or the letters to the churches, chapter 4 and 5, the vision of God on the throne, and then chapter 5, the Lamb, there's really not a lot that's debatable. There's not a lot that's controversial. I've got all sorts of commentaries on my shelf, all sorts of widely divergent views of eschatology and the end times in the book of Revelation. And up through chapter 5, they pretty much all agree on all the major pieces. There's not like this guy's over here and this guy's way over here. They pretty much all track in the same direction. Now, when you get to chapter 6, everyone starts scattering. And the broad interpretive approach that you have to the book begins to show itself and interpretations begin to vary and spread out. But up through chapter 5, they're remarkably the same. And I think that's encouraging. A fifth of the book is not that hard to understand. There's a lot of stuff starting in chapter 6 that is hard to understand, but a fifth of the book, the very beginning, the foundational part of the book, the vision of Jesus, the letters to the churches, the two centering foundational visions in chapter 4 and 5 are all pretty straightforward. So 20% is in the bag. Chapter 4 and 5 go together. We talked about them last month. In the same way, chapter 4 and 5 go together, chapter 6 and 7 go together. And there's really a thematic unity to 4 and 5 and a thematic unity to 6 and 7. And there's a literary clue in both places that the reader, the interpreter, is to read and interpret those two chapters together. So Derek Thomas says, just as chapters 4 and 5 belong together, so in one sense, the chapters 6 and 7. Now, in a real sense... 6 and 7 answer a question raised in 4 and 5. And the question relates to the supremacy of Jesus and the reality of evil. 
So one of the burning questions for people today was a burning question throughout the Old Covenant. And the question was this, if Yahweh is really the king, why are we such a small, insignificant nation and everybody defeats us and we struggle and terrible things happen to us? If Yahweh's the king, how do we make sense of all the chaos that we're experiencing? And you understand that people still ask that question today. If there's a God in heaven, how do you explain the Holocaust? If there's a God in heaven, how do you explain tsunamis that wipe out tens of thousands of people at one time? If there's a God in heaven, how do you explain all of the millions, billions of people who are living in poverty and they're hungry or they lack the basic necessities of life on a daily basis? How do you make sense of this? For the readers who were reading this book, one of the questions might be, if Jesus really is sharing the throne of the universe with the one who sits on the throne, why is Rome so powerful? I mean, we just had this vision in 4 and 5 that there is one seated on the throne and the Lamb is sharing the throne and the Lamb has taken the scroll of history and He's about to break these seals. If all of that's true and He's so powerful, why does Caesar have so much earthly power? Those are the sort of questions uh, that are being wrestled with as you come to chapter 6 and chapter 7. So I gave you a few quotes here. I don't know that I'm going to read all of these to you, uh, but it's just Eugene Peterson, James Hamilton, G.K. Beale, and Derek Thomas all sort of making the same observation. If Jesus is the king, why is everything so chaotic? Why are Christians being killed for their faith? Why are our churches so small and pathetic compared to the glory and the power and the influence of the Roman Empire. Those are the issues that we're wrestling with here. So let's talk about Revelation chapter 6. When you look at Revelation 6, and you can open your Bible to that chapter, the entirety of Revelation 6 focuses on the first six of seven seals. So you remember back in chapter 5, there's this scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. And the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, comes and he takes the scroll from the one who's seated on the throne. And John, when he hears about him, hears about a king, this root of David, lion of the tribe of Judah. But then when John sees him, he sees a lamb who's been slain, and he takes this scroll and he's about to break the seals. Six of those seven seals get broken in chapter 6. The seventh doesn't get broken until chapter 8. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the background and then walk through these seals. The background source material for Revelation 6 is Zechariah 6 and Matthew 24. We're not going to read those passages tonight, but I just want you to understand almost everything that we're about to read, imagery-wise, doctrine-wise, is found some other place in the Bible. One of my favorite quotes about the book of Revelation, and I'm paraphrasing this quote, is Eugene Peterson who says, Revelation doesn't tell us anything new. It just gives us a new way of seeing what the Bible has already said in different places. 
So pretty much everything that we're about to read in Revelation 6, you can find in Zechariah, and you can definitely find in Matthew 24. And I want to point out two things in these quotes. I've given you three quotes. Notice the quote from James Hamilton and the quote from Tom Schreiner. In the Hamilton quote, the second one there, he says, Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 are complementary presentations of world history between the first and the second comings of Christ. And then Schreiner says, the seals are interpreted in various ways, but I understand them to include the time between Christ's resurrection and his second coming. So if you were here at church Sunday, I gave you the outline of the book from a guy named Peter Gentry, Seven Sevens. The sevens, the group of sevens we're talking about here are the seven seals. And what Hamilton and Schreiner and your pastor are saying is, these seals cover the period of history between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Specifically between the ascension of Jesus to heaven and the return of Jesus from heaven. All of the sevens in the book tell the same basic story in that time period. They just tell it from different perspectives. And again, we talked about that on Sunday. I gave you a chart in your notes. I don't want to say a whole lot about that. I've, I've not come up with that myself. This is from Tom Schreiner, has this in uh, his commentary on the book of Revelation. The only thing that I've done is I've edited the meaning of the white horse, and I've put it in italics so that you know this is hotly, hotly debated, and we're about to jump into the middle of that debate. What is the symbolism of the white horse, which you saw in the, the art just a moment ago? So we'll start by reading. Revelation 6. Beginning in verse 1, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And we're going to stop right there with the first four seals. All right, let's talk about seal number one. The first seal. What is it? What does it represent? Here's your options. The white horse and rider have been identified as, number one, option one, widespread war and conflict. Option one. Option two, Jesus and the spread of the gospel. That's kind of different from war and conflict, right? Here's the third 
possible interpretation, false teachers in the work of Antichrist. One of the things I said Sunday is when I'm uncertain in Revelation, I'll tell you I'm uncertain. And when I feel confident about something, I'll tell you I feel confident about something. We're going to come to something in chapter 7, very debated, and I actually feel really confident about my position. Not as confident here on the first horse. So here's your options. Option one, war and conflict. In your notes, I've just given you all the arguments in summary form. Okay? Why would some people say that it's war and conflict? One reason is that these four writers are presented as a group. Seal 1, 2, 3, and 4. They're presented as a group. And when you get to the trumpets, the first four trumpets are also presented as a group. The first four trumpets are all destructive. The first four seals, all, according to this view, are also destructive. Here's another reason you could see it as war and conflict. In Matthew 24, which is a parallel passage, Matthew 24, Jesus describes what we can expect on earth between the ascension and his return. What's life going to be like in the church age? Jesus lays it out. One of the things he says is there will be wars and rumors of war. So maybe that this is part of that reference. This is the, the biggest argument for this view. If you look at verse 2, it says this, I looked and behold a white horse, its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. We're going to talk later about that phrase, was given. It's called a divine passive. And it's one of the clues in the book of Revelation to say to you, God is permitting this evil. It's under the umbrella of his sovereignty. He's allowing it to happen. He's ultimately sovereign over it, but God himself is not responsible for the particular evil that's being described. And in this instance, what was given to him, to this writer, was a crown, was this power, was this authority to conquer and to go out conquering. When that phrase shows up, it was given to him, it's always in reference to something negative. Jesus doesn't need to be given this crown. The book of Revelation wouldn't describe it that way. It would just say, Jesus has a crown. But when something is given like this, it usually involves questions of sin and rebellion and how God is sovereign over that. So there's view number one. Here's view number two, Jesus in the advance of the gospel. Why do people say that this horse represents Jesus and the gospel spreading? One reason is Revelation 19 describes very clearly Jesus riding on a white horse. And so some people say, white horse, white horse, you got to match those up. Jesus is on that one. He's got to be on this one. Okay? I think you got to be really careful with that in the book of Revelation. Just because a symbol means one thing in one place doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in a different place. But some people make the connection here. Uh, Jesus in the advance of the gospel. They say uh, Apocalypse is telling you what's real, even if it doesn't seem real, so it doesn't look like to these Christians that the gospel is spreading and just taking hold all over the world. But this is showing them. It really is. The gospel is going to go out. The leaven's going to spread. The mustard seed's going to grow. The kingdom's going to advance. Uh, this would give comfort to believers who are suffering persecution. Matthew 24 speaks about the gospel spreading to all nations. So if we've got a parallel in Matthew 24, 
Well, maybe the parallel is Jesus saying this gospel will, will be proclaimed in all the nations. So the gospel is going out in this way. White's an important color in Revelation. Again, that's similar to the Jesus on the horse uh, argument. Here's the big argument for this view in my opinion. A man named Irenaeus who knew a man named Polycarp who knew a man named John who wrote this book. Irenaeus says it's Jesus and it's the advance of the gospel. Now, Irenaeus didn't write Revelation. Polycarp didn't write Revelation. Irenaeus is wrong about other things, doctrinally and theologically, when you read his, his works and his writings. But there's a pretty close connection to the man that actually wrote this book in ancient church history. And Irenaeus says, this is Jesus in the advance of the gospel. My two favorite commentators, George Ladd and Tom Schreiner, uh, those are recent commentators. They both say, this is Jesus in the advance of the gospel. So there's your second option. Here's your third option. This is just a complete about face. A whole bunch of people say that writer is not Jesus and the gospel. It's false teaching, false teachers, and a lot of them say it's actually the Antichrist pretending to be Jesus. So here's the arguments. Uh, the writer is a parody of Jesus in Revelation 19. Notice that he has a bow here. In 19, he has a sword. So they say there's a little difference there. Verse 2 says this crown was given to him. That's that divine passive we talked about, and we'll talk about more. So that, that negative connotation of something being allowed that's sinful and wicked, it could apply to war and conflict, or it could also apply to false teachers in the Antichrist. Uh, Matthew 24, if that's our parallel passage, it speaks about false teachers and false Christs. And honestly, most modern commentators take this view. Guthrie, Gorman, Thomas, Beale, Mounts, Hamilton. Those guys are all over the map in the book of Revelation, and they all say that it's false teachers or antichrist. So, you ready to vote? One of my favorite segments on TV is during a political election on Fox News, Brett Baer has a segment called The Candidate Casino. And he brings people on, and they talk about who's running for president, and he says, okay, I'm giving you 100 bucks. You're going to Vegas. Who are you going to put your money on? And they have to say, well, I'm going to put 10 bucks on Rick Perry, or I'm going to put 50 bucks on Donald Trump, or whoever's running for president at the moment. So I'm going to give you my Vegas betting odds, okay, from your preacher on these three views. If you give me 100 bucks and you send me to Vegas, now full disclosure, I typed these notes a week ago. I updated my odds today from a week ago. I changed them from a week ago after thinking about it for one more week. So my odds are I'd put 80 bucks on view number one, war and conflict. I think that's what this writer represents, war and conflict on the earth. Um, I would put 10 bucks on Jesus and the gospel because Irenaeus says it was Jesus and he lived one generation away from John. And that doesn't nail it down, but that's a pretty, uh, pretty convincing thing to me. And I'd put 10 bucks on deceivers and the Antichrist because there's a lot of people that I respect and I think they're really smart and intelligent who take that view. So I'm just telling you, when I don't know in Revelation, I'll tell you I don't know. And I'm telling you, I don't really know. But I think it's number one. 
war and conflict. So that's seal one. The rest of these are not so complicated. You ready? Seal number two. The red horse and the rider are given, same phrase, it was given. They're given the power to instigate war, violence, and conflict. Now some of you are thinking people and you're thinking to yourself, if the second seal is about war, violence, and conflict, why would the first seal also be about war, violence, and conflict? And one of the answers that people give to that is, there is one kind of conquest that doesn't involve fighting. Like, for example, if you want a recent example, Russia takes over Crimea and there's not a whole lot of fighting. Just conquest, we're taking it. There's another kind of fighting or conquest, conflict, that involves bloodshed and guns and swords and throats getting slit and people getting shot. And that's going on in Ukraine right now. So maybe that's the difference. The first one is sort of a bloodless takeover. Rome took over a lot of territory this way. They just showed up and said, this is ours. And everyone said, okay, it's yours. <laughs> we don't want to fight you. You can have it. How much do we owe you in taxes? That's conquest. There's another kind of conquest where Rome shows up and they start slitting throats. So the second one, red horse, rider, the power to instigate war, violence, and conflict. Third seal, the black horse and the rider given the power to instigate famine, scarcity, and economic inequality. There's a lot of talk on this uh, third seal about a denarius. A denarius for this, a denarius for that. We don't deal in denarii or denariuses or however you want to say it. But what it's essentially saying is a denarius is a day's wage. And if you work for one day, that's enough money to buy food for one day. That's tough economic times. If you work all day and all you get out of that is food for one day. That's what it's talking about with this stuff about the denarius and the barley and all that stuff. Uh, the stuff about don't touch the oil and wine, these are luxury goods. So you can read the quote here from Guthrie, not Piercy, Guthrie. And she says, uh, we're talking about scarcity of resources and inequity of resources, which certainly has played out in human history. So that's seal three. Seal four, the pale horse and rider identified as death in Hades, and they bring death, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. All sorts of goodies. Bill gives you some explanation here. Hades is the sphere that imprisons the dead. The LXX, that's the Septuagint uses death and Hades in combination almost synonymously in reference to the region of the dead. These devilish, devilish forces are to inflict four kinds of woe on a fourth of the earth, which are representative of all the ways that death can come and which, uh, all which can result in death. One of the things I'd point out to you on this fourth seal when it talks about wild beasts, I don't think that that's talking about uh, a mountain lion attacking you while you're hiking in Big Bend. That same phrase is used by early Christian writers when they talk about Christians being thrown into the Colosseum. They're fed to wild beasts. So when it talks about people dying at the hands of wild beasts, I think it's an open reference to what Nero carried out with Christians in Rome, in the Colosseum, in delivering them over to wild beasts. Now, those of you who are culturally astute and educated and sophisticated have probably read 
this last fourth seal and thought to yourself, I've heard that in one of the greatest Western movies of all time, Tombstone. And in fact, you have. It's the opening scene in Tombstone where the cowboys ride in to this little village and they shoot up the priest or they shoot up the guy getting married and all this stuff. And the priest comes walking over and he's yelling at him and he's preaching at him. And Johnny Ringo turns around and puts a bullet in the priest's forehead. And all the cowboys laugh and they say, hey, Johnny, what is that priest talking about? Some sick horse going to come get us. And Ringo says, he's quoting the book of Revelations. That's his first mistake. He calls it the book of Revelations. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. But he says, he's quoting the book of Revelations. And then he quotes this. A writer, he brings death and he brings Hades. And hell followed with him. That's what Ringo says. This text says, Hades followed with him. But in the movie, he says, hell followed with him. And if you watch the movie all the way to the end, there's another revelation parallel. There's a scene towards the end of the movie where Wyatt Earp catches up with some cowboys at the train depot, and he has four men. You see the symbolism being played off of? He's got four men standing behind him, and Earp sort of takes this verse and twists it around, and he says, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. Again, sort of a twisting of this verse and the idea that you see here. But all of that imagery comes from the book of Revelation. Now, here's the point I don't want you to miss. There's this writer, and he's known as Death, and Hades is following with him. Don't miss this. Careful readers will remember that Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. This is in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 17, Jesus says to John, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has them. This writer has been given the authority to carry out death and destruction on the earth. That's the story of human history. It's been a pretty violent history over the last 2,000 years. Famines, pestilence, murder, people thrown to wild beasts because their faith in Jesus. It's been rough at times. But understand, Satan, and this writer, does not have that authority in and of himself. It's been given to him for a time. Jesus has the keys of death in Hades. Satan is not in control of Hades or death or hell or anything. He's in control of nothing. Hell is not the place where Satan torments people. Hell is the place where Satan will be destroyed in the end. Jesus has the keys of death. Jesus has the keys of Hades. So that's the first four seals. Let's read the next two. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. 
and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? So we're going to talk about seal 5 and seal 6. In a real sense, this fifth seal is explaining to us what we should expect when Jesus, the root, the lion, the lamb, takes the scroll and begins to open these seals as he rules from the throne of heaven. What's it going to be like on earth? Well, the fifth seal describes the souls of those slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore, and they're praying for justice to fall on those who dwell on the earth. Okay? Think about this. There are souls in heaven. These are people who have died. Specifically, these are people who have been killed for their faith. They've died as martyrs. The text says they died because of the word and their witness. If you go back to Revelation 1, that's the same reason John was on Patmos. He was exiled to the island of Patmos because of the word of God and his witness. These people have been killed because of their faithfulness to the word of God and their witness. Their bodies have been buried. Their souls are present with the Lord. And they're crying out. They're praying. They're talking to God in heaven. And the question is, how long until you bring judgment and vengeance on those who dwell on the earth. So let's make a couple of observations here quickly. These martyrs acknowledge that God is sovereign, holy, and true. That's verse 10. He's sovereign, he's holy, he's true. I would suggest to you that in your life when you suffer, these are attributes of God that you ought to remind yourself of. Because they're probably the attributes of God that you will begin to question. Is God really in control right now? Is God really good? Is God really doing what is right and what is best? And these saints, these martyrs remind us He is sovereign, He is holy, He is true. Secondly, they ask how long it will be until God brings judgment and vengeance on those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth. In the book of Revelation, it always refers to unbelievers. It's not saying that unbelievers are the only ones on the earth. It's just describing those who dwell on the earth, they're unbelievers. They're non-Christians. When they pray this prayer, I've had sweet little old church ladies, no lie, I've had sweet little old church ladies say, that's a bad prayer. We're supposed to pray that we love our enemies and forgive our enemies and 
we don't want that sort of thing. But these are glorified believers in the presence of God, and they're praying that God would bring judgment and vengeance on those who dwell on the earth. And God does not say, hey, knock it off. That's not nice. He doesn't rebuke them for the question. And you understand, they're not being petty. This is not like, get even, oh, they've got it coming. They are praying to the God who is sovereign and holy and true. They're praying that God would bring on those who dwell on the earth what they deserve in a just, holy, true, righteous way. It's not just about revenge. It's about God doing what is right in this circumstance. That's their prayer. These martyrs are given white robes and they're told to rest. Just a a cross-reference for you on these robes in verse 11. When we get to chapter 7, verse 14, you learn that the way you get a white robe is you wash it in the blood of Jesus. That's how you get a white robe. Not by being a good person. Not by praying the right kind of prayer. But it's by having your garments washed in the blood of Jesus. That's how you become clean. So they're given white robes, and they're told to wait until the full number of servants and brothers are killed. That's verse 11. There's a set number that will be killed, and they're told to wait. They're not told, don't ask that question. They're just told, wait. What you're asking for will happen, but right now you need to wait. So Thomas says the day of judgment will be God's answer to this prayer. Seal number six. There's a great earthquake that signals the return of Jesus and the final judgment. Seal 6 is really God's ultimate answer to this question of how long until you act. I've given you a few quotes here, one from Ladd and one from Guthrie, both of them just saying to you, this is the end of the world, this is the final judgment. One of the clues you have that we've reached the end of human history already here in chapter 6. Right? This isn't one long timeline that you lay out. These are seven visions of the period between the ascension and the return of Jesus. When you read in the book of Revelation about earthquakes, you're reading about a theophany. All these earthquakes in Revelation, they happen when God shows up. And you can read all kinds of interpretations of Revelation that try to predict this earthquake, this earthquake. They're trying to map it out on human history. It's missing the point of the book. When you read about an earthquake in Revelation and then you read the stars are falling from the heaven and the moon is turning to blood and the heavens are being shaken and it's like God is shaking a fig tree. What it's saying to you is God has shown up and he's ticked off. He's here to do what these souls have prayed that he would do, bring judgment and vengeance on those who dwell on the earth. And that's clear because as soon as we read about this earthquake and all of these great apocalyptic signs, we read about the Lamb who shows up. Him who's seated on the throne, verse 18 or 16, him who's seated on the throne and the Lamb. So a couple of last thoughts here on this sixth seal. Everyone will hide from the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb because their wrath is very great. Let's be done once and for all with this silly childish notion that the God of the Old Testament is mean and Jesus is loving. 
Old Testament God, only mean. Jesus, only loving. It's nonsense. It's nonsense in the Old Testament and it's nonsense in the New Testament because Jesus shows up here and they are terrified of the Lamb's wrath and of their wrath. Who's the there? Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. They're terrified and they pray that the rocks would fall on them. So one last point here. The opening of the sixth seal leads to a question. You see how the chapter ends? Who can stand? Human history has unfolded four writers. It's been terrible. There's been horrible things happen. Then we read this next seal, seal number five, and the saints are praying, how long are you going to let this go on? Because it's bad. We lived through it. It's terrible. And they're told to wait And then we see this sixth seal, and God shows up, the one who sits on the throne. And the Lamb shows up, and they are wrathful. And the question at the end of the chapter, when Jesus shows up in wrath, is who can stand? So we'll end with a quote from Thomas. The chapter ends with this great question. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? That's the question which chapter 7 will answer for us. The question is not, will I survive the trouble that lies in the world, but will I survive the judgment of the Lamb? And there is only one sure way to answer that question. We must believe the message of the gospel that says faith in Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath which is to come. Now, if you want to find the last seal, you have to wait for chapter 8, or you can jump ahead to chapter 8. Verse 1 